Today's scripture reading comes from the book of 3 John, verses 1 through 15. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers, and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone, and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony— And you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be with you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, every one of them. This is God's word. This is the third letter and the final one we have in Scripture that John wrote. Um, It was sent to uh, the churches in the same area around Ephesus. The difference between this letter and the other two is that the first two were addressed directly to churches. Um, What churches, we're not sure exactly. There's a lot of um, large and small gatherings, some in homes. And so we're not sure, but the first two were addressed directly to churches. And this one is to an individual named Gaius, who is probably leading a small church in his home which was uh, the common practice at the end of uh, the first century. <clears throat> now, the first two letters, 1 John and 2 John, spoke mainly about two things, and they did in response to the, the situation where former members were leaving the church and they were going to start their own fellowships, and they had denied many of the truths about Jesus and were teaching lies about Him, about uh, what it meant to be a church and teaching lies about the Holy Spirit and all kinds of things. Now, this one, well, both those letters, sorry, were John telling people to do two things, basically love Jesus and love the church, which is full of people who love Jesus. So that was really the whole summary of everything he was doing and, and continued to say. He wrote to provide them assurance of their faith in Christ, of who Christ was, of, of assurance in their eternal security, assurance that they would be continue to be led by the same Holy Spirit that had saved them. And so he wrote to bring them a sense of renewal because their, their faith had been shaken a little bit. They were uh, starting to lose faith, if you will, doubt some of the truths that were foundational. 
but also to bring some stability to the people who remain. Now, the third letter, though, is a bit different uh, from the other two, but it still talks about the same themes, uh, but just from a different perspective. Um, But all that to say that what we see, if we just step back and look at these three letters, we see this apostle, uh, someone who was an eyewitness to Jesus, touched Jesus, heard Jesus, walked with Jesus for the three years of his ministry, uh, writing letter after letter to generally the same people, pretty much saying the same things over and over again uh, to where he begins to sound a little bit like a broken record. When I was, when I was putting sermons together and studying, I got to the point where I was like, man, we're going to talk about this again? Like loving again and love again and loving your brothers? Like people are going to get tired. And so obviously we, you hit it from a little bit different perspective. But I started asking myself, like, are these people just dense? Like, does he have to be so repetitive in his letter because they just have, you know, short-term memory or they just don't get what he is saying? Maybe. Or, probably the more likely alternative, is that John knows, and I think that we ought believe, that any sense of restoration, any sense of aligning something back to how things ought to be, aligning with, with God and His Word and His way, any sense of restoration whether it be restoration in how we think, how we feel, how we ought behave, comes through a return to some very basic truths and not a leap to something new. So in other words, when things are breaking, whether it be an individual or a family or a church, you don't start inventing new ways of doing things to fix what's broken. You go back to the basics, the foundational, the 101, the very simple things. So whether it be brokenness in, in yours or our relationship with God, like my relationship with God is broken, I've been given into my sin, whatever. If you've been caught in your sin in that you have, have begun to worship things, believing they're going to make you happier than God, or someone has brought sin into your life and that's hurt you, whatever it happens to be, renewal, restoration, comes from a return to stuff that's very old, that's very simple, but is incredibly powerful. And that's the Gospel. The Gospel, the truth of Jesus, is not just the the facts that you believe and then move on to learn new things. The Gospel is the thing that continues to reform how we think, how we behave, how how we ought live. The Gospel is, is... not just the ABCs, but it's the A to Z of Christianity. Now, this third letter, though, although I believe it continues to go back to the gospel, the third letter is not as overtly theological as maybe the other two were. Um, and what I mean is that John doesn't go in like he did in the other two and just prescribe what you're to do, what you're to believe. Christians believe this. Christians act like this. Christians do not. I mean, it's just very in your face. That's why it's a difficult book. Instead of prescribing it, what he does is he describes a situation, which we'll see, between two house churches that has probably come about because of the false teachers that have gone around and begun to influence some of um, these churches. As I said, the letter is written to a guy named Gaius, and it's being delivered by a guy named Demetrius. 
And Demetrius is referenced in verse 12, where John writes, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. And we also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. So what you see there is this letter is basically a recommendation letter for Demetrius, this, this guy whom we don't know exactly who he is. He is probably a traveling missionary, uh, a, a traveling teacher that goes around and is proclaiming the gospel uh, from town to town, city to city. And it's written to this guy named Gaius, who uh, really doesn't know this Demetrius, has never met him before, never even heard of him before, uh, and it's written so that he will welcome him into his home and take care of him as he travels through. Now, back when we studied Second John, which is the third or fourth sermon, I believe, in, in the series, we saw that hospitality was essential, especially in the Greco-Roman world of this first century. And it was essential because the inns were not really a very appealing place to stay. Most of the inns uh, were, were basically cesspools for crime and, and disease and, and prostitution. And so it, staying there wasn't appealing. It wasn't the first place on the list that you wanted to, to go. Um, historically, then, the Jewish people, in, as part of their culture, the Jews would come to a town... Uh, not that they're coming to preach Jesus, that would be odd, but the Jews would just come and they would look for fellow Jews to stay with because they didn't want to stay in the inns. And occasionally, or actually the practice became fairly common, they would carry recommendation letters so that when they came to a place, they could basically go, look, I'm okay, I'm respectable, I'm not some freak here to take advantage of you, I'm a nice Jewish uh, person. So the Christians... Uh, probably adopted the same practice, it seems. And, and Matthew chapter 10 records Jesus kind of talking to his disciples, talking about as you go out and uh, don't take much with you and let them receive you. That's a practice that they would do. So they would go around and not take much with them, but would be received into homes, hopefully, to be cared for. Now, here's the thing that should seem strange to you. So John has written to generally the same people two full letters of saying, love your brother, love your brother, love your brother, love your brother, love your brother. And now he has to write a hospital or a, a recommendation letter so that they make sure that they love the brother. That seems odd. Now, the rest of the letter, though, gives us context as to why he has to write this special letter. At some point prior to writing uh, this particular letter, John gets a report. Now, he is uh, what historically becomes known as kind of the bishop of Ephesus, so he oversees a lot of churches. He gets some sort of report, and the report is that the guys that he may be sending out, even himself, he actually had a school at one point, that he's sending out these preachers and these missionaries are not being received into homes from this particular church, this home. And so that report results in John writing two letters, The first letter he writes, he references in here, is sent to the house uh, of the reported offender, the guy that refused to take care of whoever he sent, um, Diotrephes. And apparently, this guy, by John's description, is a loud, prideful, abusive leader, and he is wrongly assuming, or at least asserting authority, refusing to love the missionaries that are coming through, 
slandering the apostles who are telling him otherwise, and then kicking out anyone in the church that doesn't agree with him. So this is what this guy's doing. John wrote a letter to that church to who knows what it said. Um, I think it'd be kind of fun to read, but to basically say what's going on and rebuke them or something. Who knows, maybe Diotrephes burnt the letter. I don't know what he did. We don't have it. It doesn't exist. But we have a second letter, which is 3 John. And the second letter is written to uh, a godly leader in a neighboring house church to a guy named Gaius. And the entire letter centers on the tension that is existing between these two house churches and their different approaches to loving the brothers. Okay, So John begins his letter to Gaius here with a greeting and a prayer. And we could skip over and go, is this normal? But I think we spend a little bit of time on there. Um, in this greeting, John expresses, quite frankly, a, a, a gospel-centered love for this man. A, a bond with this man that, that he, he loves Gaius as a brother in Christ. And the thing I began to ask myself, and hopefully we'll ask, you'll ask yourself, is that in terms of bonds, like a, a spiritual kinship with somebody, apart from your spouse if you're married, do you have, have you ever experienced that kind of, that spiritual bond with somebody, that, that brotherhood or sisterhood, whatever it is, where you are um, bonded or you have that, that strong relationship because you are Christians, a fellow Christian, where you say, man, we are brothers. I, I actually believe that God intends very much so for us to have that kind of relationship. You know, I can have that kind of relationship with a ton of people. It's going to be a few people, but a brotherly kinship that you guys have, a, a friendship that, quite frankly, transcends age and experience. It transcends even style and personality. Now, the reality is, I mean, the hope is that we have, a, in every church, should be very diverse. We shouldn't all be the same. And there's many people that have friendships in here that have occurred because of your participation in the gospel together, in a community like this together, that if you had been left to yourself or before this time, you may have not looked across the room and thought, I'm going to be friends with that person. Because a lot of the friendships that are created are with people that you go, man, that is not what I expected, but you're an awesome person, but I never would have picked you because I was blinded by personality, clothes, age, whatever. I've had those kind of bonds. I have those kind of bonds now. I actually believe that most of those bonds are created or formed when brothers and sisters serve together in a very intense way. It reminds me of if you've ever seen, which I doubt you ever have, the reality TV like Survivor type of stuff, where these guys and girls go off. I don't remember how many there are exactly, but they, they go off for 30 plus days and they practically starve to death trying to survive um, do all kinds of weird you know, things together, but basically go through this experience that's difficult, and they come out and they're just like, oh man, I love you, you're going to get my wedding, and like, you know, it's all kinds of bonds they have, and they're friends forever. And there is a reality to that. There, there is some genuineness to that, where they went through something incredibly difficult, and because they were in that difficult thing together, they created a bond that was awesome. I actually believe that that's what the church is supposed to be. 
The church is supposed to be this place where, where those bonds are created, where we serve together, where we celebrate together, where we worship together, and quite frankly, where we suffer together in things that are difficult. And we go on crazy missions together. I've always wondered, and I've asked them, but I don't know how honest they are, when the initial group of elders are like, yeah, we're going to start a church in my house. And then we're going to go into the garage and line it with black plastic. Won't that be fun? And then we're going to watch the demon-possessed lady show up in December. You know, and crazy stuff. But I, I don't think, for the most part, if I look at the core group that we started with, I would have said, man, I want to be your best friend and your best friend. I wouldn't have picked them out of a crowd, and they definitely wouldn't have picked me. But the truth is, they're some of my best friends now. The first people I call. The people that I lean on, the people I depend on, because we went through a lot of crap together. And that's what, like, we can look at each other and go, yeah, yeah, I know. You know? You just have that understanding, that bond that's just, like, awesome. And my fear is that when churches become stagnant and they stop pushing each other on mission, you actually lose the bonding-creating agent that, that does that. You can't just suddenly, like, we're just comfortable, we're just family, and we don't ever grow or do anything. Because then you lost your sense of mission, your sense of doing anything for the glory of God with the time you have here. John loves this guy, and he has a bond that's been created where, where my hope is it's created for all of us. We begin to care for one another's lives in a way that's different than the world, a way where we begin to know each other. We become so much less concerned with ourselves and more concerned with seeing others just blossom and grow. When we don't do that, we basically are very self-absorbed. And John's prayer for guys here is just the opposite. He wants him to experience success in his job, basically. He wants him to hopefully have good health and a strong faith. He prays for that. He prays for his brother. But he goes on, not only prays for him, he talks about the joy he felt when he heard about the report of Gaius' faith. He says, I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came. So brothers have come to report to John something. And they, not only they talk about um, what's bad going on, but they talk about Gaius. go, man, this guy's a stud. He says, when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth, I have no greater joy than hear that my children are walking in the truth. So Pastor John says... That there is no greater joy. Nothing makes him happier than to know that those who are in his care are walking in the truth. What's that mean? Well, when someone walks in the truth, what they believe is actually applied to how they act. It actually comes into action. It's not just of the mind. And so he hears that he's actually doing something. What he says, he actually believes, and it's evidenced by him behaving in a particular way. Now, we can find many things to be grateful for in our lives, in our families, in our church. Like, there's a ton of things I'm grateful for with my children. A ton of things I'm grateful for with my friends. A ton of things I'm, I can be grateful for when I see our church doing certain things. And I'm very thankful for when my, my sons or my daughter confess faith in Christ. I'm totally grateful for that. I'm, I'm grateful when, you know, when someone in our church receives Jesus. Amen. But there's a little bit of a pause for me because what makes me truly joyful 
is not just a confession of faith. What makes me truly joyful is when I suddenly see that faith come alive and actually something happens. I've seen it in my children where without me having to, you know, beat on them or, you know, scream at them or set them up so they do it, where they just serve their brothers or their sisters, where they actually do something to, out of love, out of sacrifice, where they, here, here, take a dollar. You know, they want, they want to, they want to, help in some way. That is beautiful to me. That is a thing that I go, man, and I love to see that here, where you see people honestly sacrificing without expecting anything. Loving people. You wonder, like, I won't even necessarily tell you, at some point I will, who makes all the cookies and the bread? Never ask that person to do that. And they continue to do that week after week after week after week without anything but thank you so much. Not one, it's like, don't tell anybody, but we will at some point, right? But that's beautiful to me, because for me, they're getting nothing out of it, and it's costing them a great deal. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. But at the same time, there is no, honestly, greater sorrow. There's no greater sorrow to see those people who are in our care, whoever that is, maybe your children, maybe your friends, maybe people in ministry, to see them not walking in truth. You know, and it's, it's especially sorrowful in a couple ways to see someone confessing truth but not living it. It makes me very sad. And it's especially sorrowful and scary for me when I see people... Um, in many ways, succeeding in every way according to the world standards and yet failing in their faith. Because I feel like that's so dangerous. I feel like prosperity is one of the worst temptations and struggles there are. But John is encouraged by Gaius' faith. He's like, dude, it's brought me so much joy to hear about this and we should be encouraged by the faith of those who we are in community with. And he, he begins to commend exactly what Gaius does. Not just the idea. Gaius did some things. And he says, Beloved, it's a faithful thing you do in all your efforts, way before he said anything, for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. So you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, except nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore we ought to support people like these that we may... Be fellow workers for the truth. So, we don't really know who Gaius was, um, which I think is a good thing. There's a Gaius that's named several times that, with, attached to Paul. We think historically Gaius was uh, a guy that came up basically under John. John ministered to him. That's why he calls him his, his child in faith, so to speak. Uh, and he later became, I believe, the bishop of Pergamum, installed by John. But, it's kind of like Joshua, in that we don't hear anything about where Gaius came from. We don't hear about his family, his upbringing, his pedigree. All we see and learn about Gaius is what he did. That's it. Gaius is known for the actions that he took. And in this case, according to John, he has a well-known reputation for opening his home to the workers of the truth. Guys that come through, missionaries, preachers, and though these guys, these traveling missionaries, are total strangers, he's never met them before. 
he has not hesitated to treat them as family. These are guys that have gone out in the name of Jesus. So they bring very little with them, and they're going out simply to proclaim the gospel, to tell others about Jesus. They have left, for all intents and purposes, any comforts they may have had at home with family, with livelihood, with easy access to food, all those things, they have stepped into a place of discomfort intentionally. And so Gaius, seeing this, his heart is one that says, you know what, those people have made themselves uncomfortable. They have put themselves at risk in all these ways. Therefore, I am going to make myself uncomfortable to bless them. And that's what Gaius does. He makes himself uncomfortable and loves them in a way like family. And it costs him something. It's a sacrifice. And he commends Gaius here. Why is he talking to Gaius? And the sense is that he's writing this letter to Gaius because he wants him to take care of Demetrius. And he probably has some concern that he's going to fall for what is happening in the house church next door. Right? The diatrophies and what he's doing. Because he's probably very persuasive. So I think there's two things we learn from Gaius' example here. And neither one of them um, I like because they're personally convicting, so you won't like them either. But here we go. First is our responsibility to actively support those engaged in gospel work, those who go out for the sake of the name, the name being Jesus. Now, there are many organizations in this world that do lots of good things. Okay, You can pay anyone, believer or not, can send money and support and rah-rah praise to people who will help orphans. Will You can buy shoes to help shoe the shoeless. You can drill wells wherever you want. Well, not really wherever you want, but provide water. Those are all good things. There's tons of organizations, Christian and non, that are out there trying to help in some way. At the same time, There are not those, or as many organizations, that are out there just for the name of Jesus. Out there just with the intention to proclaim the gospel. Now, not everyone is going to be called to be a pastor. Not everyone is going to be called to be a church planter. Not everyone is going to be called to be a missionary on those front lines. But John here says that there are some endeavors that go out into the world in particular missionary endeavors, that only believers are going to support. That only believers are responsible for. Okay? There are not too many non-believers when you say, hey, we're going to go send someone to Uganda. Well, what are they going to do? Drill a well. Well, here, that would be a great thing. What are they going to do? Well, they're going to preach Jesus. I'm not supporting that. Non-believers are not going to support that. They're not going to support you planning a church. They're not going to support you starting some evangelistic thing. What's your intent? We're trying to save people in the name of Jesus. Not going to get too many checks from non-believers for that. That is the responsibility of the church. And unlike the ancient world, we don't have traveling evangelists, traveling preachers or missionaries knocking on our door saying, here's my letter of recommendation, can I stay here for the night? It's not how we work. 
But there are all kinds of opportunities that come into our home. Yes, there's opportunities to plant wells and dig wells and give water. Yes, there are opportunities to clothe orphans and help widows across the world. But there are also a few opportunities where you are just doing flat-out, front-line gospel work, and we even have one here, where you become actually a partner and not just an observer in accomplishing something like that for God. You have missionaries like Demetrius here. One is named Jim Fickert. Jim Fickert, who is leaving. What's your job, Jim? What are you going to try to do there? Is it to just, you know, really bring culture and life to Mount Vernon? Is it just to to feed the homeless? Hey, some of the things might happen. But his primary thing is to proclaim the gospel. He's going up there to proclaim the gospel. He is leaving comfort. He's leaving that which is safe. He is leaving and leading a group of people, many of whom are also going into a place that's not it, that it's dangerous, but it is certainly uncomfortable to start something in that place, and they need our support. This is prayer support, this is money support, and why? Because no non-believer is going to support them. You're never going to have a non-Christian go, Jim, that sounds fantastic. Let me write you a check so you can go reach more people for Jesus whom I don't believe in. There are some things, like planting churches, that only the church is going to do. Doesn't mean you don't drill wells. It doesn't mean you don't feed the homeless. But it does mean there's an order to things. And proclaiming the gospel is something that I guarantee you the world is going to care less about. And my fear and my worry is what happens when the church begins to care less about that. Right? When the family of God comes together and and goes, well, someone will take care of that. Imagine if everybody did that. Imagine if every every church did that. We're not going to do that. So John is in, he's encouraged by what Gaius is doing and he challenges us in many ways. The first thing is our responsibility to support gospel work. The second one, which will not make us feel any better, but as good as Christian hospitality. Christian hospitality. Our love towards one another. The Bible has a lot to say, and I've beat this drum just like John has, not because we're dense, but because it's what we need. It's what God intends for us. Christian hospitality. The question isn't whether... It's there in the Bible. The question is, are you going to believe it and actually walk in the truth as in taking that belief and applying it to action? Let me give you a couple verses that will blow your mind. You ready for this? I can tell. You're so excited. Tell your face you're excited, right? 1 Peter 4.9, right? A couple verses. First one. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Oh, he has to add that, Right? So it's clear, hospitality comes up all the time. Peter talks about it. Show hospitality and do without grumbling. Second one, an amazing verse. Hebrews 13, 1 through 2. Let brotherly love continue. Amen. 
Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. I don't think we actually believe that. That's really been a disturbing verse to me, especially we have a lot of people come into church during the week and homeless and want, and we, I, honestly, I usually interact with them for some time, tell them about Jesus, tell them I love them, tell them why I'm going to give them money. It's not because anything they did great or because I'm great, because Jesus is great. All those things, half the time I never see them again. I'm like, hmm, I wonder. I wonder. Now here's a verse going to blow your mind. You ready? For, you're not going to believe this. I know. I'm like, wait for it, right? Okay, 1 Timothy 5. What's that? It's about widows. I thought this was about hospitality. I know. This is amazing, okay? I'm so excited about this. Okay, widows in the church are coming to the, the pastors and saying, I need help. So he tells Timothy how to deal with that. Here's what he says. Let a widow be enrolled if she's not less than 60 years of age. Okay, a couple requirements. Having been the wife of one husband, okay, and having a reputation for good works, colon. So what's a colon? Double dot? Okay, what good works are we talking about here? If she has brought up children, all right, has shown hospitality. Now think about this for all of us who excuse our lack of hospitality for what we don't have. I would bless people if I had blank. I would take care if I... These are widows who have absolutely nothing, so much so they're coming to the church to ask for money, and yet they still have a prerequisite of having to have exercise hospitality. That seems like an attitude of the heart, not a measurement of the checkbook, nor to exercise hospitality. If you can ask the widows who've got squat diddly to do it before we give you any money to support, then we all ought to be hospitable. And then the verse I I think is very convicting, especially for the pastors and elders in this church, should be. Not convicting as much as a good accountability measure. 1 Timothy 3.2 says, Therefore an overseer or an elder or a pastor must be Above reproach, amen. Husband of one wife, a one-woman man, amen. Sober-minded and self-controlled, amen. Respectable, amen. Hospitable. Hospitable. Your pastors and your elders have to be hospitable. It's a requirement of them. Now, we'll come back to that. For the early church, what we see is a picture here that the Christian home was pretty much an open-door policy, right? You were inviting people into your home. You were blessing people with what you had. And like many things, including giving, commitment, service, worship, purity, all these things, leaders are to set the example, especially in hospitality. It's an elder requirement. And it's not an example that is ambiguous. It's an example that actually is quite clear on what that means. And it's also an example, well, John says, you are to do it in a way or a manner that is worthy of God. 
what does that mean? Is that a certain, like, you've got to make sure you have a certain meal for people? You have to have a certain number of people? For me, I really struggle with that. For me, honestly, it's heart motivation. Why are you doing it? In Matthew 25, fantastic parable that Jesus says. He talks to people on his left, not good people, and the people on his right, those he saved. Not good people, too. He just saved them. Here's what he says to them. He says, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. And I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. And I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? You know what's interesting about that? They did it, but they're wondering when they did it for Jesus. It's in their nature. They did all those things, and Jesus is like, yeah, here's what he says. When you did see, or when, sorry, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. In a way or a manner that's worthy of God from my humble perspective, is a motivation that I'm going to love and be hospitable to the glory of God. Not even because it's ultimately going to bless you, though that's a great benefit from it. Not because it's going to get you to like me. Not because it's going to grow the church, but simply because it honors God. As loving you as if you're Christ. Honoring you, serving you as if you're Christ. That's a very different perspective. And and know that as I begin to say, okay, leaders set that kind of example, that kind of example is set for others to follow it. So when a church fails to do that, one of two things is happening. The leaders suck, and they're not doing it. They're not being hospitable. Or the church is not following their example, though they respect it. I'm so glad the pastor does that. I'm so glad that he has people over at his church or his house. Here's the reality. The church has to have a culture of hospitality that's not attached to a program. Once your hospitality becomes a program, well, we're having to make cards. We're having to put out announcements all the time. Make sure you have people over. We've lost. We've lost. When your church becomes a place where people don't naturally feel welcome and you're like, hey, make sure you welcome somebody. Don't talk to the four people you know and talk to someone. When you're having to do that over and over again, you've lost. You no longer have a culture of hospitality. You have a culture of a lot of things, but it's not hospitality. My hope is that it's not just the pastor you know, coming over or, or you having over to my house or Jim's or whoever's. You have people just loving on one another together. And you have people being invited to come over to my house. Let me bless you. Let's go to lunch on me. That's everybody, but especially those single guys, those single moms, those widows, all those people that just need love, but then everyone else as well. We have to have a culture of hospitality. And know that, like, I don't benefit from telling you this. Because what I do is say, by the way, I have to set the example. And that's difficult. Kalen and I, when we first planted the church, 
we were not very good at that. Actually, prior to that, we were very unhospitable. We didn't like having people in our home because it was inconvenient, uncomfortable, a drain on my finance. I mean, I had all kinds of reasons, right? But then you go, wait, we're going to lead a church. We actually have to do this. That's not natural for me. Um, and next thing you know, people are all, honestly, we began to love it and enjoy it. But at first, it was not, it was a discipline. It's a discipline. I'd love to say, like, you know what? I'm just the most hospitable person around, and I want as many people as my house as I can. I'm pretty, actually, private. I like to have my own space, leave me alone, and uh, I'll just do my own thing. But I've also found there's a tremendous amount of joy in having people over, and many people over. And I want my kids to see that, to learn from that, to have memories of, like, yeah, we have people over our house, and it was a joy. I mean, honestly, you come to my house, it's not like we do some gourmet dinner, too. It's like, hey, let's have tacos, pizza, hey, all right, cool. Because it's being together. It's not, you know, what's being offered. It's that it is offered. At the same time, I need to warn you, what I'm teaching for believers, quite frankly, is not that this, you know, you'll think about it. It's that you'll repent. That you'll repent. That the Spirit of Christ that abides in you, that actually desires to live that way, you will listen to it. And at some point, at some point, you have to realize, all of us have to realize, that when you're not hospitable, when you do not love the brothers in this way, it's sinful. At some point, that's what it is. It's sinful. And James says in 4.17, whoever knows what's right and doesn't do it, it's sin. So when you read all these passages, be hospitable, be hospitable, love one another, just tell me what that looks like for you. Because at some point, if it doesn't look like anything, you're sinning, you're disobeying. Now again, I don't benefit from telling you that. That's not the thing that grows churches. Be hospitable. Love one another. There's lots of churches that people can go to. I've not seen when anyone throws down, like, by the way, repent. Giving doesn't skyrocket. Okay? So there's no benefit to me other than to say, I'm here about glorifying God and telling you what the Bible appears to be very clear on. Now, that's what he commends Gaius for. Tells you, live like Gaius, be Gaius. The alternative is this other gentleman, Diotrephes. He's in a church, and he's rebuked by John for his refusal to love and obey. And one of the questions I had in that study guide is like, do you know anybody like Diotrephes? Have you ever met a person like Gaius? Here's the better question. Are you like Diotrephes? That's the question we should be asking because we can all go, man, I remember Gaius. I remember someone just totally blessed me, inviting their home, fed me dinner. It was fantastic. I remember those people over there. They were never doing anything. And we're distancing ourselves from both of them. John says that this guy is a self-loving jerk. Specifically, he says in 9.10, he likes to put himself first. He does not acknowledge the authority of the apostles. He's talking wicked nonsense against them. He refuses to welcome the brothers. And he stops those who want to welcome them. And he puts them out of the church. 
So whatever position he has, he's abusing it and he's prideful, selfish, unloving, false teaching, bully is what he is. And apparently, John had written this church earlier to talk about this guy and what he's doing. And instead of listening to his leadership or his rebuke, whatever it was, Diotrephes proceeds to slander John and talk poorly about him. And some scholars try to figure out, like, why, why would he start doing this? Why suddenly he like, wants to do his own thing? And well, at the close of the first century, you had the death of the apostles, and you had kind of a leadership transition going on. And churches were going to decide, like, are we going to do our own thing? Are we going to still be in submission to the leadership? And there was a little bit of a confusion there, because you had basically guys in the churches, wolves in particular, in this one, who were loud and charismatic enough to persuade people to go, you know what, we're going to do our own thing. We're going to be autonomous. We don't want to be accountable. And quite frankly, this is a huge issue for churches today. Um, Churches that exist apart from some kind of formalized relationship like a denomination or one that is planted autonomously like Damascus Road, quite frankly. That was the number one question I got, and a very good and valid question when we first planted the church was, who's your accountability? And I didn't have a very good answer for that, especially not when I was the only elder to begin with. Churches have to be accountable. They have to be submitted in many ways, formally covenanted with other churches that are trusted and gospel-centered and biblical. And that's why, you'll find out, I believe, in, in a couple of weeks, we've created a, an accountability structure where we've covenanted as autonomous churches, not part of a denomination, with other churches, Jim, us, the seed, and some others, where we say, we are covenanted to one, get one another for protective purposes. We are accountable to one another for protective purposes, to protect from guys, leaders, even me or anyone else, who could go rogue like Diotrephes? I am very much aware and seen brothers in the pastorate, in the pulpit, screw up and fail. I very much believe in the doctrine of sin for myself and any leader. And because I believe that, we have to do some things that are protective. And that's what we've done. Now, but you don't have to be a pastor to be like this guy. Uh, I can imagine it feels somewhat offensive or foolish maybe to consider whether you or I, I mean maybe not me, but you, someone who's not a pastor, how can you, I'm not this rogue leader. I'm not someone who's received an apostolic rebuke about all the things I'm doing or how I should be more loving. Um, I wonder though if for those who, who choose to love themselves, more than others, if you're really indifferent than this guy. Because this is what he did. Diotrephes puts himself first. I mean, he just basically says, I'm going to worry about myself. I'm going to worry about my own. I got my stuff. He's self-loving. Um, Diotrephes throws off any authority. Well, what's that look like? I don't have to listen to what the pastor says. That's your interpretation. That's pretty much what he does to John. 
Don't tell me I gotta be hospitable. That's not what the Bible teaches. Okay. Dioty. Diotrephes slanders and gossips about the pastors and about the leaders. Well, I haven't seen the pastor have people, I haven't been invited over to his house. I don't think they're very hospitable at all. He's slandering them. They don't know how to read the Bible. They don't, I mean, who knows? All the things that he's saying. Calls it wicked nonsense. Diotrephes is not hospitable. He's not helping anybody. He maybe is that guy that basically when he sees a need come up, whether it's to feed them, to clothe, to protect, to pay for, they go, someone will take care of that. I don't have to. I'm not my brother's keeper. And the last thing he does is he's excommunicating people out of the church. Now that might not apply. I don't know how many people you're able to kick out of the church. But what I see today in our culture is that instead of people like pastors kicking someone out of the church, people kick themselves out. They hear something they don't like. It doesn't jive with how they do life. They kind of want a, a church or something that avoids some of the commands in the Bible. And so they go to the next church until they hear something else they don't like. Then they go to the next church until they hear something else they don't like. And they go to the next church and they slander the other churches as they continue on. Not to say that those who have left churches leave them for the wrong reasons, but that's what I see more likely for a way to happen. We don't want to be like him. But my fear is that, like John always does, you are one or the other. Or you are leading or walking towards a certain way of living. So he, he closes off at the end here after two letters of commands to love the brothers. At the heart, we find John telling us something in verse 11. Specifically, he tells us that we can only control what we do. We can only control what we do, how we love, even if we're not loved back, even if we are hated for loving. You can't worry about what everyone else is doing. You can't even worry what the pastor is doing or this other brother is doing. It's all about what you are doing, you and God. Thomas Watson, a great Puritan, said that it's better to be wronged than to wrong. Better to be wronged than to do wrong. And without doubt, Gaius is probably feeling the pressure first from inside and then the persecution from outside to compromise, to disobey, and to pretty much stop loving his brothers for all kinds of reasons. Diotrephes is not going to let him, he's not going to be like, just let him do what he wants. He's in his face. He's kicking people out of his church. He's going to be condemning him across the street. But John probably has his own internal battle going on, like this is going to be uncomfortable, this is going to cost me. So he gives a final, John gives Gaius his final exhortation to all of us, really. He says, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God, whoever does evil has not seen God. So John tells him both what to do and what not to do. And first, he says, do not imitate the bad, unbelieving example of diatrophies. He tells Gaius not to respond to diatrophies like diatrophies. What would that look like? He says, don't treat him with slander because he's not being loving. Don't treat him with violence. 
or even indifference. He tells him to imitate good, to basically love as Jesus loved. What's imitating good? Well, good is loving our brothers to the glory of God and not for any other reason. Not because it's going to get you something, not because it's going to give them something, but because God asks it of you and it honors Him. Good is loving our enemies to the glory of God. Not because it's going to change their heart, not because it's going to make them hate you less, because God asks it of you and it glorifies Him. Good is being willing to suffer for loving to the glory of God. It's going to cost you something. It's going to be a sacrifice. It's going to be uncomfortable. Why do you do it? Because God asks it of you, and it glorifies Him. Good is imitating Jesus, the only one good person who ever lived, who did all of this before us. And if you don't believe me, this is the example Christ gave us. This is the seed, the character of the seed, if you are a Christian, that God has implanted in your heart. And if you actually believe what Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. Old Sam is dead, right? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. If you believe that, it should look like something like Jesus. 1 Peter 2 says, For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, whether it's people hating you, whether it's just being uncomfortable, whether it's costing you something, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. He also loved you knowing that it would not, quote, benefit him at all. Leaving you an example so that you might follow him in his steps and not just watch and say, good job, Jesus, well done. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We might die to self-love and live to love others. By his wounds you have been healed. So we love Jesus. And in loving Jesus, we love our brothers. And we do all of those things to the glory of God. And he ends the exact same way or pretty close to how he ended 2 John telling his friends that he would rather not write a letter at all. He'd rather not write on paper and ink, or using paper and ink. John could have written more, but as I said when we preached in 2 John, he knew the danger of long letters, long emails, and the power of face-to-face conversations. I actually believe that a sermon is probably less powerful than a face-to-face conversation with a brother who believes this. Letters and phone calls and emails and texts are not the most effective tools to walk in the truth, to charge someone to walk in the truth, or to walk in love. 
I believe that real love comes from real face-to-face relationships and community. And it starts, quite frankly, not with Pastor Sam preaching a sermon. It doesn't start with an email going out or a long letter. It starts with a small group of people. A church is changed, I believe, with a small group of people who commit to what God has commanded them to do. And when they interact with one person, they begin to have relationships with that person. They're hospitable to that person. They demonstrate it, and it slowly grows from there. All you need is a small core to change everything. And that's what we need in this church. I'm not saying that we're terrible, we're not hospitable, we're doing... All I'm saying is all you need is a few. My prayer is this fall, when we actually start going, hey, we're going to get into road groups again, we're going to get back together as small groups, that you start to have people thinking, just a few people, all it needs is a few, to begin to think differently and affect other people thinking differently. As you begin to have relationships with one another face to face, and suddenly we're, we're starting to love each other as family, and not just an event you attend, not just a place that you are a part of, but you actually are, are really owning it and being part of it. My prayer is that we pursue relationship with one another because that is why God has brought us together. You are here, my hope, and by God's word, you are here to be built together for all of us to grow together. And my prayer is that that will actually happen, that you will step across the line of observation, you'll step across the line of kind of just watching and and being an audience member and actually step into a place where you begin to love and be loved because we need to do both. We need to do both.